This episode contains strong themes that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. We'll be speaking to ex-conspiracy theorists, exploring their journeys in and out of the rabbit hole of misinformation, as well as experts. Yes, those people we've decided to completely disregard this decade. Well, we're bringing them back because, and this might just be me, years of study trumps a three minute YouTube video. Join us as we explore unconscious bias and address those who would sacrifice truth, integrity and objectivity on the altar of disinformation, propaganda and conspiracy. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK, the leading political and media literacy education platform and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini founder and CEO of Shoutout UK, here to challenge your understanding over the world around you and hopefully not challenge your attention span. What happens when the people who shouldn't know what they're talking about actually don't? What happens when we have elected officials making baseless claims about a satanic cabal of Jews, or have presidents publicly endorse outlandish and disturbing conspiracy theories? We don't have to try too hard to imagine these scenarios because, well, they've already happened. Not too long ago, on January 6, 2021, Swarms of Trump supporters stormed the US Capitol in an attempt to win back the presidential election. Many of those who took part were staunch believers in QAnon, a conspiracy theory that believes President Trump is a hero safeguarding the world from a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles, Democrat politicians, and Hollywood celebrities who run a global sex trafficking ring harvesting the blood of children for life-sustaining substances. None of this is even remotely true, but an alarming number of people from the United States and beyond have been exposed to and support these delusions. The facts that should anchor us in a shared sense of reality are simply not. Those who believe in QAnon aren't just infected by conspiracy, they appear to be inoculated against reality. Joining us for today's episode is Mia Bloom, co-author of the book Pastels and Pedophiles, who explains to us how the rise of QAnon should not come as any surprise. She shows us how a conspiracy theory with its roots in anti-Semitic tropes has gone global, originating from the dim corners of the internet to now being referenced on some of the largest conservative media outlets in the United States. Also joining us for this conversation is Jataf Jadija, a former self-identified QAnon follower. He talks us through his experience from being a staunch Bernie Sanders supporter to falling down the rabbit hole of QAnon. Tag along 
and join us as we wade our way through the bizarre and compelling world of Q. So I'm joined now by Mia Bloom, who is an academic who wrote the book called Pastels and Pedophiles. Hi, Mia. Hi, hello. How are you doing? I'm, I'm well. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your background and how you got into the study of, of um, extreme radicalization? Um, so it's an interesting story because it's, I started very early. I, I, was, uh, I started university several years earlier than, than most people ordinarily start. And so I was a freshman, uh, very young, uh, and in Israel. And it was, I think, probably my first or second week of university. I had just turned 17 and there was a bomb in the central bus station. And um, there was like this little robot came and uh, they don't defuse the bomb. It's, it's not like Mission Impossible where you have to figure out if it's the green or the red or the yellow wire. Mostly if there's a suspicious package of any kind, they take it somewhere else and they just blow it up. And within seconds, everyone just went right back to their normal, you know, state of affairs. And, you know, the day is nothing had happened. And I, I found that so intriguing. And since I was in Israel and it was my first year of university, I then decided I wanted to study terrorism um, well before it was sort of a well-known field of study. And um, from there, I decided that, you know, the best way to do this is to learn every different element of it. So uh, in the 90s, I, I went and got a degree in Arab studies, uh, studied Arabic. I had previously gotten a degree in Islamic studies. So by the time 9-11 happened, I was one of very, very uh, few people who had expertise in Islam, spoke Arabic, and had a long history of studying terrorism. Mm -hmm. which, which, you know, put you in almost the ideal place. Um, linguistically as well as obviously academically to 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 study this stuff. Um, I mean, more so more so than you can imagine. I was actually at Princeton at the time on a postdoc, and you know looked out the window because I'd come into the office. I'd had coffee with a colleague of mine, Amber Seligson, who who studied why dictators decide to open up and and run for election because they believe that they're popular. And I got into the office um, after coffee and someone said a plane hit the towers. And the first thing I did was I looked outside and it was a blue sky and not a cloud in the sky. And I thought, well, that's very odd. Um, and then when the second uh, tower got hit, okay, well, that's not an accident. Because the first one theoretically could have been, you know, a plane, it was an accident. Yeah. I mean, a freak <laughs> accident. I mean, Christ knows what was going on for the pilot's head when he, you know, but... But technically, right. yeah, you're right. It, it, it could very well be perceived to be an accident. And of course, because we were at Princeton, you had everyone like um, uh, Michael Cook and, and all these other academics, you know, racing through the history to see, you know, the significance of September and different terrorist groups. And so, you know, they came up with Black September or, you know, some other. But it turned out that um, several days later, people realized, well, wait a second. Al-Qaeda has been talking about ramming planes into buildings for a very long time. And in fact, there was an attempted dry run in the Philippines with Operation Bojinka, and uh, that was foiled. 
And so now we had almost like a blueprint of what had happened very early on, because initially bin Laden did not claim credit for the attack. Later on, he certainly did. You know, he was very pleased with the effects. Mm -hmm. But initially, you know, people were scrambling to figure out what was going on. Mm -hmm. No, of course. And, and you know, 9-11 was, was consequential for a number of different reasons. You know, it changed the world in a, in a variety of, of different ways. Um, and in your field, how did the consequence of 9-11 changed the study of, of radicalization and, and extremism. Because here in the UK, it, it, it became a thing after 9-11. You know, people weren't really talking about extremism or terrorism or anything like that. I mean, if you were in, say, Northern Ireland or specific parts of the UK or you were you were switched on to the Irish Troubles, then then maybe you would. But for the average person, the average reader, it wasn't really a thing. And then, of course, 9-11 happened and then everything changed. It was in the headlines everywhere. I think the difference in the field of, you know, those those of us who study terrorism, I'm reticent to say terrorism studies because there's a lot of stuff that happens in terrorism studies that isn't methodologically sound or grounded in any theory. So I'll just say the people who study terrorism mm -hmm. You can really sense a difference between those people that study terrorism before 9-11 and those who only became interested in terrorism afterwards. And part of this results in a kind of blinder effect that for them, the entire field of terrorism was structured by 9-11 and heavily influenced by jihadi ideology. And so they see everything through that prism, whereas people who study terrorism prior to 9-11 are probably more familiar with secular groups that use terrorism or groups, you know, not in the Middle East, groups in Europe, uh, for example, mm -hmm. Butter Meinhof in Germany or the Red Brigades in Italy or the Provisional IRA. And as a result, I think what ends up happening is people overdetermine. For example, one of the biggest mistakes we see now is overemphasizing ideology or overemphasizing this notion of root causes. Well, that's because everything that you're looking at is through this prism of a jihadi terrorism post 9-11. Um, whereas if you study terrorism prior, you probably know that individuals join terrorist movements sometimes not having any knowledge of the ideology and that the ideology is acquired afterwards. And so like this, this notion of some sort of sequence that happens, that increases escalation over time, that people get more and more involved, I think is also one of the misnomers and, and the mistakes that people make. Um, and then the, of course, then the last thing and most obvious thing, which probably should have started with, is that if you study terrorism prior to 9-11, you are very familiar with the fact that um, not all terrorists are Muslim and that this is not a Muslim phenomenon, including apocalyptic terrorism that you know sort of is initiated in the 90s in Japan with Om Shunrikyo. So I think it's really important that those people who only quote unquote discover terrorism post 9-11, maybe do a little bit of back reading and, and read some of the stuff that was published prior. Um, so moving on to QAnon. So, I mean, what is QAnon as a conspiracy theory? Where did it come from? And what, what do its followers actually believe? But one of the things that we see with QAnon as it emerges in October 2017 on 4chan, which is one of these um, discussion boards, uh, was not, you know, particularly mainstream at the time, is that 
as it grew in popularity and it moved from the chans, 4chan to 8chan to 8kun, to the more open API platforms like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and started picking up and becoming almost like a mass movement, it becomes in many ways an umbrella organization bringing together all the many different threads of conspiracy theory so that um, the Atlantic writer that I quoted before, Anna Merlin, called it a, a conspiracy singularity. So what, what does it believe then? Starting in October, 2017, the first of these Q, drop, Q drops appears and there was over 4,500 of them um, that basically said or made a prediction that Hillary Clinton imminently was going to be arrested. And of course she was not. And the mainstay of the ideology of QAnon is that there is a secret cabal of globalists and Democrats and elites that are trafficking in children, sexually exploiting them and drinking their blood. And sort of then there's additional things that have been layered on in the last few years since the pandemic adding, you know, there's an anti-Asian element to it. There's an anti-critical uh, race theory and anti-POC element. And, but the original is very much a rehashed version of what we've seen with historic anti-Semitism, um, either with the blood libels that begin in the 12th century, or for example, some of the elements of this notion of the secret cabal that are manipulating politics and ruling the world, which appears in um, a Russian faked document called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion uh, that was published uh, in 1903. And then I think it's now been published in 85 different languages. So it's one of the most popular books after the Bible. Um, and what you have then is a series of allegations about you know explaining the world that all of these bad things that have happened are not random, they're connected and they're deliberate and it's because this cabal is doing it on purpose. And so it starts to link things that would be you know completely not connected in a way that for someone reading it as they're being pulled down this rabbit hole, they start to believe that these, this conspiracy is insurmountable. And the second part of the QAnon element was that, and the only person who can save us is Donald Trump. And so it becomes then very clearly connected to American politics and, and the re-election of Donald Trump. Of course, conspiracy theories are not a new phenomenon. From questions around John F. Kennedy's assassination to suspicions of the moon landing, Conspiracy theories are a constant in our history, but QAnon is much more than a loose collection of conspiracy-minded chatroom inhabitants. With most conspiracy theories that we've explored on this podcast, there's always this, you know, kernel of truth. There's always a a minute fact that is kind of the root of the conspiracy theory and then they kind of build this fabricated nonsensical story around it um what would be QAnon's kernel of truth because i mean cabal elites you know preying on children and drinking their blood sounds insane well and it does of course and of course the the drinking of the blood comes in part from these blood libels uh, that started actually, believe it or not, uh, I think in England in the 12th century. Sounds about but, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
it was connected to the Catholic Church, and then it spread to all the churches. But um, and in fact, it, it was brought to the Middle East by Christian missionaries in Syria. So there nice. was even a Bible <laughs> in I think it was 1858 in Syria. Um, so so what's the kernel of truth? So the kernel of truth, and I have no problem saying that I agree that trafficking of children is a terrible thing, and it is a problem globally in the world, and it is something that we should actively seek to prevent. So there you go. There's the kernel of truth that we're all going to agree on. Now, the other kernel of truth is when they start to claim that, you know, who are the bad guys in the story? And it's uh, Hollywood elites. And then you look and we hear stories about Jeffrey Epstein and the Lolita Express having very high ranking either politicians or um, uh, different uh, well-known figures uh, from television, from movies, from both sides of the political aisle, you know, Trump, you know, having Trump and Clinton. So it's not even, again, just one group. And you hear the stories about either Epstein or Weinstein or Woody Allen and, and you know, or Alan Dershowitz and all of these things. And you sit there and go, well, like, well, that's true. So maybe the whole thing is true. So you only need a tiny kernel of truth. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was interesting, although it wasn't a formal Q drop, of the 4,500 plus Q drops that made predictions, they were all wrong. The one time QAnon got it right is when Bill Gates announced that he was getting a divorce, that he and Melinda were splitting up. And the QAnon channels and the chatter were, it's because of Jeffrey Epstein. And actually, they were right. And so they just needed that one time to be right. It's almost like what Thatcher was saying. They only need to get it right once. And then all of a sudden now, it's this perception that, well, it's probably all right. We just don't know it yet. Like right. the, the information hasn't been revealed. Right. When, and of course, in reality, if you drop, what's it, over 4,000 predictions, the more you drop, the, the higher the chances that you get at least one right out of sheer dumb luck. With every conspiracy theory, the people who believe in them don't always match up to the stereotype. You know, that image of the sad guy who has no friends and instead chooses to spend endless hours scrolling through forum after forum after forum and maybe wears a tinfoil hat. Who knows? But polls show that most people believe in at least one conspiracy theory. Some ideas are just harmless entertainment, while others, like QAnon, are more dangerous and capable of fueling racism, physical violence, anger, and potentially terrorism. I'm joined now by Jitaf Jadeja, um, who's from Australia and a former QAnon follower. Hello. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, um, I'm 35. Um, I just moved out of my parents' house a couple of months ago. Um, finished my economics and math degree. I like long walks on the beach. Um, I don't watch enough cricket. And I am a former QAnon follower. I guess that is uh, like... I feel like a former QAnon hardcore religious believer, but yeah, definitely. I mean, we can talk about the the long walks on the beach uh, later on, but let's uh, let's start. I think with the with the QAnon uh, <laughs> follower stuff. Um, but first of all, you were um, 
I believe you were originally a Bernie Sanders supporter. What, what, what drew you to American politics just in general? Because you're, you're based in Australia, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, like, it's a very reasonable question. Like, it's a little strange, right? Um, but I, I guess I was, look, I love economics. Um, it's always been my favorite subject, like no holds barred. And as a result, it wasn't too hard to get into Australian politics. And I followed that pretty much my whole life here and there. And then um, I went to the, the US and I went there once with my dad in 2005, just for like a month after we finished, I finished high school. And then I went there on exchange um, for about six months. I was in New York, in Queens, in Jamaica, Queens, and went everywhere. And I kind of got like a crash course in like the US sort of like culture and experience. I discovered Reddit back then. Um, so I kind of kept in touch. And then, like I said, I really love economics and inequality in like my, you know, whatever worth opinion is, is like, it's the biggest issue in economics. Um, and no one was really talking about it. And then Bernie Sanders was the first person to start talking about inequality, like specifically inequality. And that really drew me to him. And I obviously was not a big fan of Hillary Clinton um, for no particular reason. I'm not even sure why. And then, then Donald Trump won. And I, I remember, like, I still would have voted for Hillary Clinton, but I was so happy that Donald Trump won. I just thought it was funny, man. Like, it was so ridiculous. I thought that finally, like, you know, the Democratic Party can sort of re-examine why they lost, like, you know. Obviously that didn't happen. And I just kind of became enamored from American politics just there and there. It's a very interesting kind of like political kind of journey you seem to have gone on because you, you, you talked about being obviously a Bernie supporter and then you kind of, yeah. you, you said that you were, you were happy that, that Trump got elected. Yeah, um, it's, I just to just, I know exactly what you're going to say because it's like two direct opposites, right? Mm. But the reason was like, because there was a, common theme of anti-establishment that ran through both campaigns right. so right rightly or wrongly right so obviously hillary was it was, hillary was the um, establishment and trump trump certainly was not the republican establishment when he started so because of that commonality i think me and like i would have obviously i didn't vote but like if i i would have switched maybe i still think i would have voted for hillary but that that that's the long and short of it roughly mm -hmm. so it, it was it's, it's the commonality of kind of the the not being in politics forever yeah, um, yeah. outsider vibe. Outsider, that... exactly. Like mm. a change maker. Like someone who would shake things up, which is something I felt like everyone really wanted mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. And what was about the QAnon conspiracy that, that drew you in? Like what was the for lack of a better term, grooming process like? Like how did, how did you start no, to get right. involved in that? You're right. It's, it's, it's funny because it's like, I guess the best way to describe it really is it's, it's a cult, like cult life, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's how it felt. And like no one joins a cult, right? And they join a good thing. It just turns out that it becomes a cult. And for me... Yeah, no one turns around and says, I'm going to wake up and join a cult one day. It's more like, exactly, I'm going to wake exactly, up and join like, this dude. inspiring yeah. religious exactly. movement and then kind of exactly. fast exactly. forward six <laughs> months and they're wearing tin hats and uh, drinking... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Question is, <laughs> exactly right. So after Donald Trump won, I I think there was some I had but by complete coincidence, I was 
I had become very socially isolated um, from my, like all my friends. I was dealing with a chaotic mental state. And like, this is not an excuse, it's just a reason. Mm -hmm. So I I had long since been diagnosed with epilepsy. Um, That was fine. But I then got diagnosed with ADHD about a month after he got elected. I was still not like I was going to be diagnosed with bipolar 2 but not at that time so it was like I had a lot of time to myself I was barely going to uni like one subject a semester like that's all I could take so you were at home a lot I'm guessing yeah and like that's exactly right and I was so shocked by the fact that no one saw it coming that I like I needed answers right I just it didn't it the it, the black like the polling just it just didn't make sense to me it still doesn't kind of make sense like how everyone's wrong all the poll like this doesn't it's just strange but um but it happened like, you know, it doesn't have to make sense um and so i went looking for a media outlet that that at least wasn't kind of anti-trump and i really just wanted to find a, a the other side of the story and that's kind of how i ended up with Alex Jones, because Donald Trump had gone on Alex Jones and Alex has the show InfoWars. It was four hours. So it's perfect for filling the long days, right? Of like, you know, needing content to watch at home. So as a result of that, I kind of really got into Alex Jones and just sort of spiraled down for like, it was almost a solid year that I was, I went so hard just into conspiracies in general, like really hard. Like I consume them all, everything. Like most conspiracies are about the bad guys, right? Like whatever, it doesn't have to be like a grand conspiracy. It's like, oh, the neighbors like putting garbage in my bin. Like, oh, the council in their you know, taxes and blah, blah, blah. It's always about the bad guys, right? Mm-hmm. I remember thinking before, it's, it's honestly like crazy. Like that, the, the way I was thinking as well, like where are the good guys? Like, I don't understand. Is literally no one doing anything that doesn't make sense. There's too many people who know, probably blah, 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 right? And Q comes along and he's he's advocating a conspiracy about the good guys, that Donald Trump is one, that Donald Trump is actually making all these fantastic 5D moves and everything you're seeing about being wrong, you know, he's actually done everything. It's all right. It's all correct. You're, you're, you're going to be so right. You The biggest I told you so, blah, 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 right? And so did this renew your faith in, in, in the president at this point? Uh, it didn't just renew my, it, like, it gave, it supercharged it, I think. Like, it's such a, like, I feel like there was like, here you've got a choice, right? Where it's like, the, your, your worst fear, your biggest obstacle, oh my God, dude, I have to admit I was wrong so publicly about something I was so sure about that other people were so sure was ridiculous, right? And then on the other hand, Oh, you were the brightest person that has ever written in the history of bright. It's like, it's a no brainer. Um, like, of course. And yeah. And I really, I went hard and mm-hmm. I distinctly remember making a decision to do this. It wasn't just, it was like, I was on the fence, whether this is real. And I was like, I've got nothing left. I'm going to go all in. What was the, what was the kind of like trigger point that Tanner and said, said that, you know, you said that it was a moment. What was that moment that, said actually you know what no that i'm gonna i'm gonna I, I subscribe remember, to this i remember it was so this is funny because this is actually the last this is kind of relates to how i got out but there was a there was a lot of like uh, people were trying to get q to prove that he had a connection to donald trump 
right? Mm -hmm. So someone asked him to repeat, a, get Donald Trump to say a specific phrase that someone asked him. Because like that would, it's a unit, it was like um, tip top, tippy top shape, right? And like, it sounds, it's it's unique enough that not like you don't probably ever heard that phrase before, but it's not so weird that like people would be like, what the hell does that mean? And four months later, Donald Trump in front of the White House, he was, um, it was like an Easter egg hunt. And this was, I think, what, 2017, April, right? Would be my, yeah, I think it was around then. Um, and he was talking about the White House and he goes, you know, we love the old girl. We keep her in tip top shape. We call it tippy top shape. And I was like, I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And then Q like pointed out someone else, someone asking him saying it was requested and it was. So that was shocking. So that was at that point, I was like going all in. Wow. And um, if you, because you mentioned obviously being being you know starting with kind of fringe um news outlets like alex jones and so yeah. forth um would you say you would have gone down this road regardless or, or or was that kind of the initial entry into into conspiracy theories it's hard to say i like i could have like maybe I would have gone worse. Maybe I would have joined the army, right? Maybe I would have like done a lot of drugs. Like I don't know, but um, I feel like I would have. Mm. Like I really do. Like it wasn't. I wasn't looking for Alex Jones. I was looking for alternative media. Right. And he was. He wasn't the only one, you know. So I think. I, I think I definitely would. Let's fast forward slightly to the 2020 US presidential election, when adherence to QAnon co-opted the name of the well-known charity Save the Children and used it to superspread disinformation about an underground pedophile ring run by powerful elites. Within a week of it being used by Q followers, the hashtag Save the Children was used in more than 12,000 Facebook posts and mentioned more than 800,000 times on Twitter. While the campaign never actually did anything to help save child trafficking victims, what it did succeed in doing was strengthening its female base by tapping into the inherent protective nature of most women. What, what role did gender play in this conspiracy theory? You know, at the outset, I think um, we had seen the very first person who was killed on January 6th was Ashley Babbitt. And then there was a second woman, Roseanne Boyland, uh, who also died. And so there was sort of this, this at least uh, veneer that women had been involved, but it was mostly men. Like there was a lot of pictures of men. Uh, the chap with the face paint and the body tattoos and the furry hat with the horns, Jake Angeli, or otherwise known as the QAnon shaman. There were a number of, of men wearing, you know, QAnon merchandise. Like they were wearing a shirt or a sweatshirt or a t-shirt. Um, the men who occupied Speaker Pelosi's office. So I think there was this perception, especially at the initial arrests were male, 
we were seeing like Jessica Watkins, the woman who was a bar owner and an oath keeper who was also arrested. And then as we did a bit more digging, what Sophia and I found is that from 2018 to 2020, there were 12 different crimes that were connected to QAnon, half of which were female. Now, of course, the female crimes tended to be very personal ones, like a woman kidnapping her own child because she had lost custody, or there was some mental illness associated with these criminal activities. Um, something that we would, uh, I think is known in the press is like a Munchausen syndrome by proxy, women who would injure their own child in order to get or glean some sort of sympathy. But when we dug deeper, and again, in particular, looking at the financial element of it, that's where we saw a lot of women, women who at the outset with QAnon in 2017 were amplifying content like uh, Tracy Diaz or Tracy Beans, who was making a lot of money from it. Um, a lot of politicians running on QAnon platforms. And then we had two politicians eventually elected, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia and Lauren Boebert in Colorado, who have become, you know, become quite nuisances in the, in the Congress in their first um, um, four years. So they've become infamous, not famous. But what we then started to see is the financing of QAnon. So it was uh, Women for America First, or it was Clarence, uh, Justice Thomas's uh, wife, Ginny Thomas, or it was um, some very famous members of Trump's family, like uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle. So we started seeing women everywhere in a way that I hadn't seen in many terrorist groups. You know, we, we, we were looking to see could we follow the money? Because very often, you know, and this is again, something important when you're studying radicalization, you know, when people say why, like you ask the wrong questions. You have a lot of people that are conducting this research and, and they don't have any training in psychology or psychiatry and they're asking the wrong questions. And so when you ask someone, you know, why did you join this group or why did you do something? You very often get a prefab prepared answer of what you know the the group wants you to say right and so instead because sophia is an actual trained psychologist instead of asking why questions we started looking at how questions and when you're asking how and you're you're tracking the money that's where you really get um sort of a, a more accurate picture of what's going on and that's where we saw so many women we saw women at all levels both in terms of amplifying the content disseminating the content, and also financially raising money uh, in order to have the January 6th failed insurrection. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like the this was the the goal of the Save the Children campaign, of, of getting these these um, these women motivated in, in this way to, to contribute financially or, or, or as, as you said, in other examples, harming their children? For me personally, you know, this was something, you know, you started to tug at the string and the whole thing fell apart. Um, we, we mentioned in the book, the Save the Children campaign, but we really needed data. Mm -hmm. And so after the book was published, we went back and um, we, we went to find this hashtag campaign, Save the Children, that eventually became so big in the summer of 2020 that Facebook disabled the hashtag. So wow. that in itself was challenging. Um, and remember, it was in the summer of 2020 that 
all of the social media companies finally started to clamp down on QAnon and um, it was removed from Etsy, it was banned from Twitter, um, Facebook didn't completely ban it, but any, any group that was violating terms of service. So, but they disabled the hashtag. And so we went to go find the hashtag uh, we, we were not getting a lot of help from social media companies, but what we did eventually was we took, uh, I think, 250 hashtags from QAnon, Save the Children, and we compared them to 270 of the charitable Save the Children hashtags, and we, we compared them side by side. And what we found was a significant racial difference between with Save the Children, the charity, which is originated in the UK, it's over 100 years old, it emerges after World War I to feed the children of Europe who are starving. What we saw was 97% of the children depicted were not white. And when you looked at the QAnon campaign, what you found was 93% of the children depicted were white. Now, what was that difference, the, the 7%? Remember I said they were using actual FBI missing children. Occasionally, those would have been the children of color. Right. But what what Cody Buntain, my 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 co-author did, and, and he's an Americanist and an expert on um, information technology, what he did was he looked to see, well, wait a second, if the if we see that women in the United States in 2016, white women disproportionately voted for Donald Trump. Um, and then in 2018, they didn't. They did not vote for Republican candidates. It was the beginning of this blue wave that uh, has now brought Joseph Biden into office. There, there is a perception that in order to get these women back, they had lost a lot of Republican women enthusiasm. Um, and this was a way of ginning them up again by having this hashtag campaign of Save the Children and really speaking to these white women at the most basic level that not only are your children in danger, but it's these black and brown men that are coming for your girls and they wanna rape your white women. Well, that resonates in a way that really just brings all of those racist tropes you know, to the surface. And not only did white women come back to the Republican party, and here was the shocker, especially in light of 2018, more white women voted for Trump in 2020 than in 2016. So wow. really, it, 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 if that was the intention, I mean, it's, it's hard to prove that was the intention. It's a high correlation, we can't prove causation, but certainly it was a very effective campaign at re-energizing this suburban white woman base that came back to Trump in, in even larger numbers in 2016. So, I mean, yeah, if, you know, as you say, you, it can't be proven. But if that was the aim, then 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 clearly it was very successful, considering um, considering the numbers. And and would you say then that they kind of the the, the conspiracy theory or the or the campaign, um, you know, the QAnon Save the Children campaign, utilize kind of two things: the the one utilizing children, which is often a seen as the most vulnerable in our society therefore most people as, as you say especially women would be would be more inclined to kind of jump on that and almost therefore lowering our own almost like critical thinking because we start to think emotionally when it comes to the most vulnerable in our society and then mixing in the fact that you know these children as you say you know they, they switched them for white children which means that you know there's a proven idea that 
you relate to people that look like you more than 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 people that you don't. This is how we as human beings just function, unfortunately. Um, but it kind of used this kind of racist tropes mixed with that kind of um, motherly instinct, I guess. It absolutely did. And, you know, one of the things that we, and we published this article uh, from the, it's a journal of, um, it's in sort of a technology journal out of Stanford. Um, it's a, I guess, a journal of online security and trust. But one of the things that we did was we we saw in the QAnon materials, a series of posters. And what the poster was, it's a, you know, there were 10 different versions of the same poster of a child with a large hand covering its mouth so that it cannot scream, sometimes maybe even covering its nose. And of the 10 different versions, in eight of the versions, the child is white and the hand is black or brown. And again, this relates to a very old trope um, that you see in Birth of a Nation, the, was it the D.W. Griffith um, film that sparked Nazism in the KKK, mm -hmm. where um, of the different kinds of tropes uh, post-Reconstruction in the United States after slavery, you had, you know, Piccaninny, which is the, the little girl with the, um, the braids, you have Step and Fetch It, Uncle Tom, you have a number of different negative stereotypes associated right. with people of color. But the one that comes out in particular is called Black Brute. And the Black Brute is the Black man, you know, first during slavery on the plantation that wants to rape the white woman, you know, the... The, the slave owner's wife or right. daughter. And then post-Reconstruction, that's sort of the way in which the KKK really got people uh, emotional, like whipped them up into a frenzy. And, you know, Emmett Till is, a, is an example of, of how that worked. This idea that, you know, some 15-year-old boy whistled at a white woman, that's enough to get him lynched and killed. And so one of the things that we see in the QAnon materials up until around 2021 is very racist tropes that are you know, obvious if you've studied um, people of color. And it's also then one of the reasons why QAnon became very aggressively against critical race theory because they didn't want people to have the wherewithal and know about the history to pick up on the tropes. Because if you have never studied this, you wouldn't have known, oh, wait a second, you know, black hand on a white child's mouth. Hmm, I wonder where that's coming from. So it's very obvious to certain people. And it was it was really quite shocking, the racial difference, but also the use of these tropes, mm -hmm. because, for example, these white women would be very concerned with their white children. And like you said, the psychology um, data that has been it's come out of Stanford has shown that people tend to be less empathetic and sympathetic to children of other racial groups. In a post Jimmy Savile, R. Kelly, Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein world, it's almost understandable that this conspiracy theory drew so much traction. The one kernel of truth being that there have been a few high profile cases of arguably powerful elites preying on the young and vulnerable. As with all conspiracy theories, however, that small kernel of truth then snowballs into a deeply disturbing fabrication. First of all, almost all of QAnon is regurgitated conspiracy theories that already exist. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it, it's not, there's very little new in there. Um, so that really plays on confirmation bias because then that's how you grab 
all this like um that's how it became like an umbrella for all conspiracy theories mm-hmm. because people who were like in believing in AIM, you know, they were like, oh wait, wait, so this guy he's saying it's true, right? Like, so they got drawn to that, and then other people do the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of movies, like yeah, I there's there was this so there's this idea um, that symbolism is important, and the the cabal or the bad guys. Uh, they have to tell you what they're going to do or what they're doing, but some kind of subconsciously in order to mm-hmm. do it. Obviously, you're now out of out of the movement. Um, at what point um, or was there a specific moment that you realized that you wanted out? Like, what was the kind of was there a trigger or was it kind of a slow burn? It. It was a slow, it started off slow, but then it happened very quickly. Um, there was, so I guess, like, I'll start, at the, I'll just give you a brief summary. Because, mm-hmm. like, there was specific things that started and ended. I remember the tip-top, tippy-top shape thing, right? I was like, bro, this is it, okay? If this is wrong, then I, 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 didn't, then I don't even want to think about it. So I just looked around, and I, funnily enough, I couldn't find, I didn't, I didn't use, I couldn't find this on Google. I was using DuckDuckGo. And I was trying to disprove this, right? And I just ran into like this YouTube video. It literally had like a thousand views, right? Production quality wasn't great, but the content was solid. And it just showed, it showed that first of all, the poster who requested that Q say that um, phrase is actually the same person who was using the Q account. Like there were screenshots that had like had specific markers that only that same person would be able to do it right but more importantly than that that is just something that donald trump says he says that from time to time he said it before and he'll say it again that is just the catchphrase okay and that explain and it's like that is and he wasn't the likelihood is he was gonna say at some point he was inevitably gonna say it but it wasn't even that right that wasn't what like really like shocked me to my core it was the fact that Donald Q placed, like Q, like he knew, he put, oh, first of all, he observed Donald Trump saying this, okay? Like that, that is not a, like that's a very impressive thing. It's not like Donald Trump says this all the time. He says it like every six to eight months, okay? Secondly, he then was able to use that in a way to sort of preempt a prediction knowing people only go one step further. I'm like, bro, this is like classic sociopath behavior. Like, fortunately, I know a couple of sociopaths, right? I know them a long time, right? They're, they're so good at this kind of thing. They're so good to the point where you have no idea. Anyone you think is a sociopath, I assure you, is not. Um, you would never guess. But I was like, if I, this is pure manipulation. And I was like, if I've been manipulated like this, then I've been manipulated in other ways I have no idea about. And I can't, I remember at that moment, I kind of like just got all the conspiracy shit that I'd learned and whatever. And I grabbed it and I just like chucked it in the bin. I was like, I don't like, hey, fuck, like get the hell out of here. Um, and yeah, that is kind of like that. That was like, yeah, that was a big day. And then I, um, it was weird. I kind of like, I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to feel. I didn't trust my feelings. Didn't trust my thoughts. Didn't trust my feelings. I didn't trust my thoughts about not trusting my thoughts or feelings. 
Um, and I kind of like, I didn't know what to do. Like, I just sort of was like frozen in time. And it felt like, like when I saw that, I was sitting in my computer room and it just felt like, it felt like the entire, like I obviously like imagine hypothetically, like the walls physically start sort of coming in closer. And then, you know, the sky comes in closer and the sun, the moon, and like, like physically, if that kind of happened, what, how would you feel, right? That is exactly how I felt. And I felt like, I don't know, re, I don't know like rebooting, like reset. It was so strange. And then I didn't know what to do. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. What do I do now? And I mean, like literally like, like the next second, the next 10 seconds, the next 30 seconds. And I was like, okay, okay. what I can, I'm going to go have a cigarette. Because like that, that'll kill 10 minutes. Okay, while well, I processed it. Um, and I went outside and I was just smoking my cigarette and I was like, okay, okay, okay. I was wrong. Like, oh God, I was so wrong. And I was like, if I am wrong, that means someone else was right. If I was right, I would want to know that I was right. That was half the reason I was there. So as a result, I should go find those people who are right and tell them they were right. And then like I wrote like a Reddit post about it like 10 minutes later. And yeah, that's kind of like how I even started doing this. Like someone contacted mm -hmm. me through there. And mm -hmm. people were so like welcoming and accepting. And there was not a single negative comment in there, which is not something I would have expected. Not something I kind of wanted. I wanted to be like, like I hated myself so much in that moment. And I was wanting some kind of like self-flagellation. And the, the, the most crazy like the thing that shocked me again was that I would not have done this for them I know I wouldn't if it turned out I was right I would not have been as of full of grace as all of them were there was like only one it was like one negative comment out of 150 and it was, wasn't even that bad I was like oh you're an idiot dude <laughs> I was like yeah well it's not wrong and well, did that make it easier like I'm, I'm sure you you obviously made friends in, in the QAnon movement was it you know, was it hard to let go in the sense that were people reaching out, you know, concerned for your for for your health that you weren't part yeah. of the movement anymore? Um, not, not really. Like, sorry, sorry, keep going. No, no, I was just gonna ask that. And and yeah, yeah, you... like this was, dude, this was like way back in the day. There weren't barely anyone knew about it. Like, it was mm. like anyone I spoke to was just a bunch of randoms. Um, but the thing was that these those people. Those, I don't even know. I owe them more than anyone I think could possibly ever owe because they gave me permission to maintain a sense of self-worth and dignity and not have a self-complete ego destruction, like more than all of the Like they gave me my life back and they didn't need to and I wouldn't have done it for them. So that is essentially, they have, because they gave me permission to come back into polite society and not be maligned and like loads that is that is what made it easy or easier unlike jataf others may not be as lucky in finding a support system when their worldview has been completely flipped upside down qanon has created these echo chambers of thought where seeds of distrust are being sowed towards the media towards the government and even towards your own family.
We know that there have been a number of polls that have been done either by AEI, which is a conservative think tank, American Enterprises Institute, or the Institute for the Study of Religion. What they found is that, you know, 15% of the American population believes in the statement that there is a blood drinking cabal of Democrats and elites who are trafficking and killing children. So they don't say, are you Q? Again, remember, asking the right question is very important. And if you've already been told, don't say Q, you're not going to say, yes, I believe in QAnon, but they were asked the questions about the ideology. Mm. And if those are representative samples, and those are two different surveys done at different times, that could result in 30 to 31 million American adults. Thank goodness we've never had a terrorist movement with millions of followers. So I think that... Um, I started to, you know, we, we walked into this thinking we were going to see uh, the early manifestations of a terrorist group. And in fact, we, Sophia in particular, as an expert in psychology, we saw a lot less terrorism and a lot more mental illness. And the mental illness being that, you know, people were suffering during the pandemic. And that interest in QAnon from October 2017 was relatively flat. But then you have the pandemic in March 2020, and there's a 600% increase in people posting about QAnon, the number of groups, and, and got to the point where it's very difficult, you know, the expression is you can't swing a dead cat without hitting someone who believes in it or believes in some element. But the other difference that's really important to emphasize is that unlike a jihadi terrorist group or some of these other ideological groups, um, with the QAnon, you have almost like shades of how much you believe. And because it's it's this uh, conspiracy singularity and an umbrella organization that includes everyone who believes in, you know, the earth is flat and the moon landing was fake and 9-11 was an inside job and that there are lizard people that are pretending to be human. Um, what you have is you have degrees of QAnon-ness. What, what you end up happening is that QAnon... Um, is not it, like a terrorist group. It doesn't have the central, you know, top-down element to it. And in many ways, the leadership or the influencers are really there just for the grifting. They're there for the money. And again, that's a lot, maybe that's closer to groups like the FARC in Colombia, which got really interested in money, or Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines. But for the most part, most, most terrorist groups have some sort of ideology that they really believe in. And at the leadership level, we have just a lot of people who are exploiting vulnerable and potentially mentally ill individuals. Um, and and it's, it's one of these things where there's a chicken and egg. We had a global pandemic, which caused a mental health crisis. And so people were suffering when they went down this rabbit hole, to quote Mick West's use of, you know, escaping the rabbit hole. Um, and then... Uh, I guess they became further vulnerable and and suffered from the content that they they, they consumed. Mm -hmm. I've been in these chat rooms and in these Telegram accounts. I've seen what they see, and it is very disturbing and it's horrific and it's nightmare inducing. And then the prospect of leaving, you know, leaving QAnon, that that now is your only community that you have can also be very traumatizing. And so I think the people who are involved in QAnon, I, I like to make the distinction between people who believe in it and then the, the leaders who are exploiting that the people who believe in it might have gotten involved for good reasons. They might have gotten involved because they cared about kids. 
Um, and then they got pulled down this rabbit hole and it's very difficult to escape or find off ramps to leave mm -hmm. because the normal reaction for most people is if you had someone in your family or in your friendship group that started spouting about a global cabal of blood drinking Democrats, you would stop talking to them. And in fact, QAnon encouraged people to alienate themselves from their friends and family. So now the only thing you have left is this QAnon online world. And so you can imagine it, it's very difficult for people to find ways to get out. How do we intervene, debunk, and, and deal with these conspiracy theories like QAnon, um, considering the kind of like mass appeal that they that they have because it's as as you as you called it you know it's like a coalition of all these different conspiracy theories um and also considering that it has um help or it had help from 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 foreign actors um what can what can people do to kind of you know almost inoculate themselves and others from from this this kind of this kind of conspiracy theory um or, or is it that social media companies and, and governments should do more or is it both well, I'm going to start with both because I, I don't feel that the social media companies have done enough. And I know that Facebook, Twitter and, and YouTube, Google got together to create the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, GIFCT, which is based in the UK and in the US. And a number of the social media companies where some of the worst stuff is happening, um, cyberbullying, anti-trans propaganda, they're not signatories to the GIFCT. So I've, I've been pushing back, even though I'm with GIFCT, to say that the social media companies really need to do more. But separately from this, um, because Sophie is a psychologist and she's trained both as a clinician as a social psychologist, both, she had a number of recommendations in the book, basically saying, you know, what you should do is confronting someone head on is not going to work. We know from confirmation bias that people are going to double or triple down, that they're going to selectively ignore any disconfirming in information or evidence. But instead, what she did, and this was very clever in the last chapter, she has a series of questions and uh, she, we give you the answers. And so if someone in your life believes in QAnon, what you do is you engage with them positively. You don't say you're, you know, you're gullible or stupid or, or nuts. But you say, okay, well, let's talk and, and let's engage in this. Start with, you know, I totally agree with you. Trafficking is terrible. Or yes, oh my God, the Hollywood casting couch is awful. Or there's so much misogyny in Hollywood, I agree. And look at these horrible examples of Bill Cosby and Woody Allen and so on and so forth. So you start from a position where we agree and then you move from there in a way to engage them positively. One of the other things that we tried to do in terms of inoculation was it was very difficult to prove some of the most ridiculous things about drinking blood or you know sex with children, that kind of stuff. But at some point, uh, Martin Geddes, who's a very well-known UK uh, QAnon influencer, explained in one of his treaties uh, that um, the where we go one, we go all, which is their saying, came from the bell on the John F. Kennedy yacht. Right. And, you know, and, and, and as I joke, 
I can't prove to you I'm not drinking blood, but I can certainly find a bell. So then I went on a search for the bell. And what we did was uh, one of the Kennedy boats, the yachts, is parked outside UMass Boston. I had my colleague go look for the bell. There's no bell. We went to the John F. Kennedy Library to research the bell. Uh, this, this boat, the Vittura, has never had a bell. And as a friend, as like a colleague and friend uh, of mine, Douglas Brinkley is the official Kennedy historian. He called the Kennedy family and he said, there's another boat, the Honey Fitz, yes. Is there a bell? No, there's no bell. Do we need Nicolas Cage to go track down the bell? No, there was never a bell. And so I did a reverse image um, search from Getty's work and found that there was a bell that was inscribed where we go when we go all, but it was not on the Kennedy boat. It was in a movie in 1996 um, called White Squall with Jeff Bridges. Right. And I had never seen this movie. And so I thought to myself, you know what? We're gonna, we're gonna approach this in terms of the inoculation twofold. Um, we're going to try to show ways to engage people that believe in QAnon and find ways to get them out of the rabbit hole. The way, for example, Mick West does in his work, Escaping the Rabbit Hole. But we were also going to provide tangible proof that, you know, despite the fact that QAnon considers Hollywood the center of, you know, villainy and the evil cabal, that many of the major concepts in QAnon are derived from from Hollywood plot lines and just stolen years before, as many as 20 plus years before QAnon emerges. And, and then I guess maybe the third thing is that um, Sophia suggests different sort of strategies about mindfulness, leaving your devices, going even just for a walk or channeling your desire to help in ways that are much more pro-social than anti-social. So if you wanna help children, here are some ways you can help children, but being part of this QAnon um, online virtual world is not the way to do it. If groups like QAnon are to be thoroughly debunked, if we are to hold our own elected officials accountable when they spout out misinformation, and if we want to avoid another January 6th insurrection, we're going to have to acknowledge the role social media platforms play in warping people's beliefs about the world they live in. Democracies are now being challenged, not by traditional threats to the state, but by an online virtual world that lacks transparency and trust, and instead rewards delusion and sensationalism. To combat this conspiracy theory, we as individuals need to practice empathy and forgiveness. Those who participated in the January 6th insurrection deserve to be prosecuted. However, individuals like Jitaf, who have not taken action and who have now acknowledged the dangers of QAnon and decided to leave, should be welcomed back into the real world. Actions should have consequences but ideas should be forgiven. Thank you for listening to season two of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all of our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix. 
This episode is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London. Thanks for listening and remember, stay informed.